Today and the next time that we meet, which is going to be um, in February on the 12th, I'm proposing to fill in theologically some of the material about prayer in the New Testament that was only alluded to rather briefly in the prayer morning that we held during Advent on entering into silent prayer. Um, and as we shall see, these two sessions that we're having as we build up towards Lent um, are first focusing as today on Jesus's prayer as given to his disciples. So the Lord's prayer, its meanings, its problems, and as uh, supplemented by other teachings on prayer that Jesus gives us in the Gospels. The second session in February, I'm keeping for some more demanding material in a way about Jesus's um, own struggles in prayer, in the temptation stories, and especially in the Garden of Gethsemane as we approach Lent, and what this means for us as prayers. Because, as has been well said by some of the great 20th century exponents of prayer, the Cistercian Thomas Keating, for instance, um, if you get into the business of prayer with any intensity, you will quickly find yourself following Jesus into the desert, and then finally, and perhaps rather faster than you want, into some situations equivalent to Gethsemane. So I'm keeping that for the second session. I just noted at the top of this handout um, some of the dates that are upcoming, and one very exciting piece of news which has only been formalised um, uh, this week is that Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, is going to be coming to speak to this school on February 23rd, um, but it will be in the afternoon, so please note that in your diary for sort of tea times, 3.30 to 4.30, and he will be talking about his recent book on the doctrine of Christ and its relationship to the Passion. I've also noted at the top of this handout that at this stage in our adventure in this school, um, I would be very glad to know feedback, um, what things you have liked, what things you have liked less. I'm sitting down this time not just because I'm tired, although I am, but because I think it encourages a less lecture-like atmosphere and one in which you are more able to interact in a more seminar-like um, form of um, discussion. So please take that as read today. Um, we are considering next year possibly moving to have some sessions at different times, for instance after the work day, five o'clock or so on, as people come out of work to catch more younger people, perhaps downtown DC. Um, but for the moment, for this uh, season, we are staying in this slot for the most part, um, except for um, another two Saturday morning, quiet mornings, which are scheduled uh, both in Lent and then another one in June. So let's cut to the chase because today we may have to end a little earlier than usual given that people will be coming in to pray before the 10.30 Mass. I want to start by asking first, as you follow along in your handout, well, what does prayer mean? What do you think it is? Um, and what's it for? That's so simple a question that it might seem rather inane. Um, but given that... Um, We've already been thinking in this congregation about being drawn into forms of silence in order to attend to the activity of prayer. It's worth asking the basic definitional question, what is prayer? What do you think prayer is, fundamentally? 
Yes. Finding out what God wants to do with us. That's that's already extremely interesting because um, you've sort of cut to one moment down the road after the immediate moment of trying to get God's attention to to ask for something. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. Um, but also asking for help. Exactly. Or yes. Or yes. Dealing with with problems. Um, Abba Isaac in, in the desert, if you remember, um, I mentioned him in the quiet morning in Advent, said, well, there's really only one basic form of prayer, and that's his help. <laughs> Lord, come to my assistance. Yes. I try to give thanks. Wonderful. That's one of the forms of prayer, Eucharistic, you might say. Yes, Helen. Opening yourself to God, yes. All of these are, are, are correct, but it's interesting that when, um, when you look at the semantics of the word prayer, this is the first point on the sheet, all the words that are translated prayer, whether they be in Hebrew, Aramaic, which Jesus spoke, which is a dialect of Hebrew, um, or Greek, or Latin, they all mean asking. That's the fundamental meaning. Um, intercession or petition of some sort. Um, and that's true also in the pagan literature. It's true in Homer. Um, praying in Homer is asking the gods for what, for what you need. But when you think about it, as you've already suggested in answering, such asking when it's asked to God clearly implies the desire to deepen a relationship with that without which there would be nothing at all. So this asking is a bit different from any old asking in that we are turning to the very source of our being who is holding us and loving us into existence. So exploring that relationship through asking might, I've suggested in some of my own writings, be called the asking of asking. Let's move on quickly now because there's a lot I would like to cover to um, Jesus' example in prayer. And one of the things that is most striking in the Gospels and is actually not what you might have expected from a pious Jew of his time is that Jesus, we are told by more than one Gospel writer, um, right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in Mark 135, but particularly in a passage like Luke 6:12, where Jesus goes off and prays all night. Um, Jesus obviously spent long uninterrupted periods praying to his father, as he called him. And the reason this wouldn't exactly have been expected is that, as Joachim Jeremias points out in a very important classic book called The Prayers of Jesus, um, whilst in the period just before Jesus, Judaism had moved mainly to having three periods of prayer during, uh, during the day, as opposed to the earlier practice of saying the Shema, in the morning and the evening, Jesus seems to have extended that into these lengthier periods, which was obviously a little bit puzzling to his disciples. When he comes down from being up a hill praying for all night, they want to know what he's been up to and what it is that he's been doing. Um, and jo Joachim Jeremias also made an enormous amount of the distinctiveness and uniqueness as he saw it of Jesus focusing his prayer on the relationship with God whom he called Abba. 
Abba being a Aramaic term, which is closer to um, the familial word you would use to your father, um, daddy, or something like that, papa, than it is one of the more illustrious titles, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc., which is more commonly used in formal prayers in the Hebrew scriptures. Since Jeremias made this suggestion that herein lies the absolute uniqueness of Jesus' relationship and teaching, and used it as a kind of supersessionism over against surrounding Judaism, there's been a strong kickback in scholarship against that suggestion. There's a famous article which you can find online by James Barr, who was Regis Professor um, at Oxford, um, called Abba Isn't Daddy, um, in which he explores um, how actually there are other examples in colloquial prayers of the time of Jesus that do use this form of intimacy. Um, and the other thing that, however, that's important here is that we must always remember that, and there are feminist issues encoded here, that Jesus famously said in Matthew 23, 9, that we should call no one father except God alone. So whatever he meant by Abba, and he clearly did use this term, it's remembered in um, Mark 14, 36 in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then remembered again in Paul, in Galatians 4, 4, and Romans 8. Uh, whatever he meant by it, he was quite clear that this fatherhood is not like human fatherhood. It's something completely distinctive. And we must almost, we almost keep thinking away from familial relationships when we pray to the Father, not least because our own experiences of our fathers, or indeed mothers, may not have been very perfect. Um, and this is a great problem for people who have been abused. Um, so, um, the request, moving now to point three, the request from the disciples to give them a special prayer is interesting, and it comes, if you remember, in two places in the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning the three first Gospels that, broadly speaking, run on parallel lines with variations. It comes in, in Matthew chapter 6, in, right at the heart of, um, of the Sermon on the Mount, and rather differently placed in Luke. Um, and it's worth looking at the different framing contexts. Um, moreover, um, when the disciples asked for a special prayer, it's almost certainly the case that they wanted a prayer that was distinctive to Jesus's group. That was true of other um, sectarian or um, uh, distinctive groups within Judaism at the time. So for instance, those ascetic Jews who withdrew into the desert, the so-called Essenes at Qumran, they had their special prayers. And, and the disciples in asking Jesus for a special prayer were both asking, well, what do you say in prayer at all when you're up there on the mountain? But also, what are the absolutely basic things that we should be asking for? Now, if I just read you out the Lucan version of the Lord's Prayer, which you may not be so familiar with. I want you to tell me if you can see where it's different from the Matthean one, which is actually the one we use in our liturgy. It starts at the beginning of chapter 11 of Luke. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So John also had special prayers for his disciples. 
He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. End. Is that surprising? Have you ever noticed before that this version is quite significantly different? Uh, sort of test question, what did you notice? Yeah. Well, who art in heaven? And yeah, that's right. So that, that mean God is right here with us? Not, or, or not just in heaven, or at any rate, that phrase is missing. Also, it's just Father, pater in Greek, not our Father, right? And also the indebted. Good. Interestingly, Luke uses the word sins, hamartia, forgive us our sins, um, as we forgive those who are indebted. In the Matthewan version, it's all about debts. And of course, we have inherited, in this case, the Lucan part, the more spiritualized notion, if you like. But actually, Jesus probably originally said, forgive us what we owe, all right? It's interesting how important money is in Jesus' teaching as a metaphor for um, mercy and, and grace. Any other things missing in Luke? I will be done. Gosh, you're brilliant. Um, yes, so it's just thy kingdom come, not thy will be done. Um, and trespasses? Well, that... Um, Trespass is one um, uh, translation of debt, all right? But in the Greek, it's debt in, in Matthew. Um, um, so we're missing in, uh, in Luke, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Again, um, Matthew mentions heaven twice. Um, and probably you noticed also at the end that Luke just has, um, do not bring us to the time of trial, um, whatever that means, uh, they pay Erasmus, which may well be the notion of the end times when we're going to be really sort of put through it. Um, and Matthew adds, but rescue us from evil or the evil one, more likely, um, the satanic figure. So we've got a much shorter version in Luke. What would you conclude? Which do you think is the original? Shorter one. Uh, good. Lots of people think that, including Jeremias. Um, there's no right answer to any question posed of the New Testament scholarship because pe people have only a few, um, a few um, books to argue about, so they always take contentious different uh, positions. Jeremias thinks that it's a good principle of textual comparison that the shorter version is more likely to have been embroidered. Um, but others say, given that this prayer was almost certainly handed down in Aramaic, orally, long before it was put into Greek in these Gospels, that it could well be that, um, you know, there was a shortened version um, which cut out any repetition, if you like. Um, yes, Helen? I read somewhere in the long ago, I don't more obvious to a Jew, yes. 
You could argue that, although it's a little surprising given that Luke is much more the, um, uh, the, the writer to the Gentiles and Matthew much more the, light, the writer to Jewish Christians, but nonetheless, that's an, frankly, we're in the realm of speculation here. But what I want you to note, it's a kind of obvious point, but I don't know whether you've ever thought about it, is that this prayer is extremely short in either version. If this is the core of prayer, it's worth thinking about more deeply. And one of the things down the road we might like to do is to consider some of the commentaries on the Lord's Prayer, which have been written down the centuries. The most important early ones are written by, in the third century, by Tertullian in North Africa, and by Origen, in, um, who comes from Alexandria, but was also writing in Caesarea. And I'm going to quote him again in a minute. Um, because it was a great puzzle to the earliest church why this was so condensed and what was at stake in the condensation. But roughly speaking, bear in mind that the prayer in either form divides into two kinds of parts, into two parts, two kinds of, of um, imprecations. First, we address God as our Father and, as it were, come into relationship with him. And, in, and, and ask for his will and his kingdom. So it's a kind of turning into the orbit of God, readjusting ourselves and our desires to God's um, coming of his kingdom in this earth. Whether or not we think of him as mainly being in heaven, which I think is more of a Matean emphasis, as one of you pointed out. That's the first part, but it's not to be just seen as a kind of limbering up. I think we sort of gabble through that bit and then get on to the things that we need. But the limbering up is, as it were, at the heart of the prayer of handing over or handing back one's selfhood to the supreme source of one's being as intimate, as more, as closer to one than one's own self, if you like, as Augustine put it later. Whereas the things that are asked for are particularly chosen. And each of them is a little bit elusive, actually, and much debated what it means. Give us this day, it's translated our daily bread, but the Greek is a rather um, bizarre word, epiousios, and no one quite knows what it means. Um, it could mean the bread for tomorrow. So, it, and, and if, it, if it does mean that, it can have a double entendre even then, because it can mean... Give us enough bread so that at least there's enough for old Mother Hubbard to have some in her cupboard for tomorrow, if not beyond that, um, which for some people in this world is a real consideration, as you know. But it could also mean, give us that bread which will feed us forever, all right, in the eschatological end times, for tomorrow in that sense. Um, uh, and I think it's quite likely that there's an intended double entendre. So there's a desire that we have enough to live, but to live in such a way that we are opened out to God's kingdom and its coming in the future. Um, and then this extraordinary emphasis on forgive us our debts or our sin in Luke. And then notice, which can't be noticed in the English, that in Matthew, the tenses here are absolutely crucial because Matthew says, forgive us our debts as we, and it's a past tense in Greek, it's called the heirs, as we have already forgiven others. And this is very quite offensive to 
a certain kind of Reformation Christian, that the forgiveness by God seems to be dependent on us having done it first. You see, for, for, um, for a Lutheran, this seems unfortunate because it suggests that there's something we can and must do before we can be forgiven by God. And I don't think we can get around that problem because in the Sermon on the Mount, as soon as Jesus has finished giving us the prayer, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And if you've never worried about that, you should. You should. Um, it's at the heart of Jesus' prayer that if we are not merciful, prayer dies in our mouths. Nothing kills prayer more deeply and immediately than anger or resentment. I hope that will stick in your craw every time you say it, because it took me many years to realize how radical that was. Um, um, and then the final request is that we should be delivered from temptation. But that too is rather puzzling. Why? But why, why is it also rather odd that Jesus should ask us to pray not to be tempted? Not to be distracted. Mm-hmm. What about Jesus' own life? Well, he certainly he was tempted. He was tempted, right? He was yeah. led into the... He, the first thing that happens in his ministry after the baptism is that the spirit in Mark drives him into the wilderness. That the immediate thing, the first moment after baptism, is temptation. Um, and Origen in the third century, century comments on this and says, well, it must mean, therefore, not lead us not into temptation because we will be tempted, but let us not succumb to temptation um, and deliver us from that final trial in which we will have to be, as it were, stand before God in all our frailty again at the end of time. Now, I've said only a few things about this prayer, the two different versions, the puzzle that creates, the absolutely core emphasis on mercy and forgiveness, the need to see the beginning of the prayer not as a limbering up which we can leave out before we ask for things, but the asking of asking in our deepened relationship with this extraordinary sui generis divine entity called Abba. Um, any questions about that so far? Because I've done it very quickly. Um, uh, and I just want to say a little bit more about some more cognate material in the New Testament and then pass to some really big philosophical issues that come up over this prayer matter. Any questions so far? Objections? Retractions, no. <clears throat> so let's pass on to point four very briefly. Um, if you dip into the Gospels elsewhere, and not just in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, but also in John, you will see that there are other important so-called pericopes. Uh, this is the word for... Um, little narratives or stories in which Jesus expresses views about prayer. And I think it's important to put these alongside what we've been learning about the two versions of the Lord's Prayer, because they present some paradoxes which need um, reflecting upon. I've just written a few down here, what I call <clears throat> theological puzzles that arise in the 
in the biblical material. Jesus says very firmly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, don't pray as, as the Gentiles do, who make a great show um, um, and heap up empty phrases. Um, and elsewhere, Jesus teaches against the Pharisees for, um, within Judaism for um, wanting to sort of um, make a display of their phylacteries and their, um, their daily prayer three times during the day. He says, go into your closet in private. Don't show off when you pray. There's something wrong with showing off in relation to prayer. On the other hand, elsewhere, this is probably a later saying, a post-resurrection saying, he most memorably is remembered as saying in Matthew 18, when two or three are gathered to the, together, and that is when I am in your midst. By the way, this reflects the Jewish prayer about the Shekinah, the presence of God, being present when two or three are together. So there's this paradox in Christian prayer that it should involve, as it were, an absolutely private and, um, and um, intimate development of a relationship with God, which it should involve no showmanship. But at the same time, it never is actually private because any relationship with God is to be linked up with the other members of the body of Christ. Um, and uh, I think that paradox has to be written in Christ, in, in any kind of theology of prayer, that especially when we start to deepen our prayer life, it may seem like a very lonely endeavor. But the deeper we go, the more we realize we're actually being linked up to other people in the body. Um, and that this is at the heart of the undertaking because the Abba is Abba to all and therefore there's no root to the Abba which isn't a root to others. Even if you despise them, you are linked to them. Um, also in the King James Version of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus fulminates against vain repetition and yet in that famous parable on which I preached last Advent, Luke 18, um, about the widow who keeps coming back and on and on and on about the same thing. Um, obviously, persistence in prayer is good. So I don't think this, this looks like a paradox or a contradiction. Actually, I don't think it is, because I think that Jesus is encouraging persistence, however hard prayer seems. But what he doesn't want, again, is showmanship. He doesn't want vanity in prayer. Um, what he wants is us to keep doing it. Now, here's another paradox, which is a real problem. Already in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, God already knows what you need. That's why his prayer is so short. And yet, repeatedly elsewhere in the Synoptics and in John, he says, ask and go on asking and know you will get it. If you ask for um, this mountain to be picked up and flopped into the sea, you will get it. So what's at stake there? Um, why should we pray if God already knows what we need? Why does he want us to waste his time if that's already, as it were, encapsulated within the divine providential plan? I want to come to that again in a minute. Um, also, we've already noticed this tough question for divine forgiveness seemingly being a condition of divine I mean, human forgiveness being a condition of divine forgiveness in prayer. 
and how this may seem to undermine what Augustine was to call prevenient grace, the grace that already comes to us before we even ask. That's another paradox we have to keep chewing over in this matter of reflection on Jesus' teaching on prayer. And we've already said that it seems odd to ask for, uh, to avoid temptation when Jesus himself shows us that temptation is un unavoidable, even if we resist it. Um, have you any comments on this cluster of problems? Well, the thing of forgiveness, I mean, especially when you've got difficult people who don't respect, mm -hmm. how, can, how can you forgive them when they keep, you know, not respecting you as an individual? And, uh, I agree. I think this is one of the most difficult demands of Jesus, and it cuts right to the heart of his gospel. Um, it's, um, it's one of the counsels of perfection, so-called, in, in Matthew. Jesus doesn't say, be ye nice, or um, be ye long-suffering. He says, be ye perfect, which is obviously impossible. Um, and I think that's, that's how this paradox is potentially resolved, that we can only do what he asks us and be perfect if we step into the existing circle of divine grace and response. And that's what we do every time we pray, every time we step alongside Jesus. There was another hand waving. Yes. The question I have is why the length of Jesus' prayer is so important. Mm. Mm. And my view is that it was the transformation of the yeah. to get ready for this final act. Exactly. Yes. So one, one way of putting it is, how did Scrooge overnight? <laughs> <laughs> when Jesus doesn't. <laughs> it actually it could have happened, but it would have taken him yes. a long time of prayer exactly. and transforming exactly. interaction with God, and it could have happened. <laughs> well, first of all, the Scrooge example takes us into the realm of the problem of miracle, and I'd like to discuss that another day. But the Jesus question is, in a way, even more interesting, because why would Jesus need to pray if he is the second person of the Trinity? Is this the affirmation of this human nature? Absolutely right. So, Thomas Aquinas has a wonderful discussion of this um, in the Summa Theologiae, in the Tertia Pars, the, the third part, I've given you the reference, in which he says, of course Jesus has to pray and he has to learn how to pray and he has to develop in prayer in regard to his human nature, quay his human nature. And Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century, very daringly, says, what Jesus does through his lifetime is that he, as it were, visits all the realms of passion and temptation that are um, um, authentic to human nature. And through the course of his lifetime, he purifies them. So that's why we see him angry on occasion. That's why we see him weeping when Lazarus dies. That's why we see him recoiling in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he too, quay human authentically has to confront everything that we have to confront. The Epistle to the Hebrews also says this very 
but does it matter what we Well, thank you, Ian. I mean, that great principle, pray as you can and not as you can't, but pray. Uh, we can't wait till we're perfect to start praying. We have to, we have to start where we are. Um, and that's exactly what Jesus asks us to do. We don't wait till next Thursday when we might be a better person. Um, in fact, Jesus shows us that we pray best out of our frailty. Susan, are you wanting to say something? I was going to say, isn't Yes. So it isn't just, well, what we can't say it isn't just getting to know God, because in getting to know God, we get to know ourselves, right? If God is the deepest source of our being, if we leave God out of our knowledge of ourselves, we're not going to know ourselves properly. So I leave you with these paradoxes to, I don't have an immediate answer to them, I leave you to chew on them. And I want to flip over the page now and raise some impossibly difficult philosophical questions, which you may or may not have thought about before, I expect you have, but they are most certainly not resolved in the Christian tradition. And so within contemporary philosophy of religion, uh, we have people taking very different positions on these problems. And I'll end with that at the end if you want to do some more reading. But the person I want to take you into these problems with is our third century friend, Origen of Alexandria, um, who, as I mentioned earlier, wrote one of the earliest treatises on prayer. Um, and it's available in various translations, but most cheaply in the edition that I've put on your handout. It's, it's really a text I would urge you to read if you can at some point. And Origen cuts straight to the chase. He is a philosophically trained um, um, uh, in pagan philosophy, particularly in Platonic philosophy, before his conversion to Christianity. Later he was a martyr. Um, so he's one of the first great um, exponents of the marriage between Platonic thought and Christian thought in the early church. <clears throat> and having done a sort of exordium at the beginning of his text on prayer about what Jesus says about prayer, the sort of stuff we've just covered, and behind that what kinds of, kinds of prayers are made in the Old Testament, he makes the following objections. One, why pray at all if God already knows what we need and has already providentially ordained what will happen to us? If God is timeless and has already got his plans for us in hand, then it seems there's nothing we can do to change what is going to happen anyway. And God already knows what's going to happen, so aren't we in the condition of simply being passive servants to his providence and our prayers are Otios. Secondly, does not prayer then falsely assume that we can change God's mind or tell God something he's not yet aware of? We don't do this in this church because we have forms of intercession which are beautifully sung, but sometimes in churches in England you get the impression that the, that the intercessor is letting God know some things that God might not have heard on the eight o'clock news. Um, and um, and you wonder what's going on there. Um, so, um, more significantly, when we struggle in prayer for something that we desperately want, which seems to be what Jesus asks us to do, pray and go on praying, is this false if we wrongly assume 
that God will change his mind if we keep hammering on, as again that parable in Luke 18 might suggest. And then as Origen himself says, some things that we might ask for would seem mad. If we ask the sun, God, to make sure the sun doesn't rise tomorrow as a trick, um, or not to burn us if we are stupid enough to go out without sun cream on. He doesn't say sun cream, but he does say, if you go into the midday sun in Alexandria, you're going to get, you're going to get burnt. Um, it's no good praying to God not to do that. So there are elements in the realm between prayer and the regularities of the natural world which seem odd to ask for. And then to repeat, really, he says, if some are eternally saved and some are not, as seems suggested already in some passages of the New Testament, such as Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, which talks about God's eternal decree to save some people, surely we can't change that um, if God has already decided that some will be saved and some will be damned. Um, I want to end then with ten minutes of reflection on these problems and how you might seek to resolve them. Um, let's free associate for a few moments. Some people are already going out to get on their kit for the 10.30. So um, let's hear from some people we haven't heard before, but is there, is there anyone who would like to hazard um, some thoughts about how we might get around these objections which or origins raises? and then, of course, answers himself. The theological crew here from... <laughs> I've got some young friends who are um, all budding theologians. <laughs> Any ideas? <laughs> One, why pray at all? Yes, and good, 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 good. This is Mac. This is the answer not only given by Origen, but at much greater length later by Thomas Aquinas. Even if God has already decided exactly what will happen, perhaps he wants us to be cooperators with him in what is going to happen. Perhaps that is part of his eternal decree. Perhaps he doesn't want to have puppetry involved in what he's undertaking, but wants us in the mystical body of Christ to cooperate together in ever more deepening intimacy and union with Christ so that we are in each other in this undertaking that he is involved in. And that's a very lovely thought, I think, that prayer, when un undertaken persistently, doesn't change God mi God's mind, but it changes us. <laughs> It changes us sometimes in what we even ask for, but it also changes us as we are, as it were, more and more opened up to God's mercy and providential care. And I think that's a very profound answer. But there's a, there's a deeper problem here still, isn't there? And that's the problem about whether if God foreknows what's going to happen, then there's no way of it being changed. Well, isn't there, I mean... I guess I was always brought up that God has everything happen mm. for a reason. Mm -hmm. And then people say, then you don't believe because miracles can happen. And yet, I'll say that he also has it happen for a reason. 
That's, that's part of an answer, but it doesn't get out over this problem about um, the chronology of God seemingly already knowing what's going to happen and therefore not leaving any room for openness to our freedom. Can you think of a way that might be resolved? This is a deep philosophical question. omnipotence. I, I think you're after what I'm trying to reduce, um, which is one very profound answer to this problem. It's not the only one. Uh, and that is that if we think that God is strictly atemporal, that is outside time altogether, then we're thinking falsely about foreknowledge, even to use the word for. Do you see? Because the very idea of fall is already a chronological idea. Um, this, is, this is one of the most fascinating problems in the philosophy of religion. How do we relate the notion of a God who is absolutely outside time with what's going on here at the chronological level as things unfold? All right. And one of the problems was caused by the Christian church picking up from the philosopher Boethius a notion of a temporality, which was already, I think, contaminated with chronology. Boethius saw this as being like God, as it were, sitting up and looking down at the whole course of history and seeing it in an instant. All right. But the trouble with that is it only intensifies the paradox because it already suggests that in that instance, there is chronology encoded, if you like. Therefore, Thomas Aquinas is, I think, the greatest exponent of the idea that we have to think away from time altogether when we think of God. It's not that God is, as it were, sempiternal. He just has a sort of very long-lasting life up there watching us battering away down here. But God is absolutely atemporal. And if that's the case, and if we can even think that, and it involves thinking away from our normal thinking about time, then God's atemporal knowledge of everything that will occur to us on the chronological realm doesn't actually cause what happens. It isn't in, it isn't in contradiction to our freedom. Now, that involves some highly paradoxical thinking. But the thing I want to leave with you today is that thinking about the Lord's Prayer not only introduces us into some of the deepest spiritual challenges of prayer, the importance of mercy and forgiveness, the importance of endlessly developing our deeper intimacy with this unique Abba, but it also leads us into some extremely complicated philosophical questions. Um, which are amongst the most fascinating in the Christian tradition. And what I want to acknowledge as we close today is that most more modern Christians in the West 
don't sign on to this Thomistic, this Aquinas view, than do. Most modern Christians prefer to think that God's mind can be changed under the impact of prayer, and that God himself can change his mind, and that therefore God is not, strictly speaking, omniscient, or even therefore omnipotent. And I want you to reflect on whether that's too high a price to pay for what is presumed to be a more coherent answer to this problem. The fascinating question is, when we pray, we are immediately in this philosophical debate about what is the relationship between time and something outside time. And I would like you to muse about that and maybe follow up with something like Brown Davis's defense of Thomas and Richard Swinburne's rejection of a Thomistic view on the grounds that it's incoherent and that what we need instead is to somewhat back away from the idea that God um, is completely timeless and completely unaffected by our prayers. I'm sorry I haven't resolved that one. Yes. <laughs> the problem I have is God has emotions. Mm -hmm. You read there's joy in heaven and things happen and God is pleased and pleased to you. It suggests that he's changing. Yes. Excellent. You have... Can I, can I save that one for another session? Because nothing could be more important. That's one of the reasons why contemporary theologians, like someone like Nicholas Wolterstorff, would argue that the biblical uh, tradition insists that God does change his mind. Think of when he changes his mind not to, you know bash Sodom and Gomorrah in, in the same way that he was going to, exactly. There's plenty of stories in the Bible that suggest God changes his mind. But the philosophical tradition, which is represented by Origen onwards, and which marries Christianity, and indeed Judaism, with strongly philosophical thinking out of the pagan world, argues that ultimately that's incoherent. So, can I come back to the one? Do I take that to be a request for a session on divine emotion? <laughs> Sam, last do you, point. Do you think that there's a sense that um, when, when we're praying and, and thinking of your kingdom come, mm. that that is in, in some way our movement into atemporality? Yeah. So, we typically waste our lives through this kind of succession of events, yeah. but part of prayer is actually the achievement of being able to be with something that's more important than that succession. That's a lovely thought, and it goes back to someone having noticed that Matthew points out, it's our Father in heaven, right. but we're asking for the kingdom to come. And so the whole prayer is about the intersection of time and timelessness, isn't it? Yeah. And hence these issues have to come up, and we have to think about them philosophically as well as spiritually. Thank you so much. People have come to pray now, so we better let them, right? <laughs> Um, oh, and I'll just put in a plug for this book by Michael Ramsey, former Archbishop of Canterbury. All this material is beautifully covered by him, not just this week's, but the stuff on Paul and Jesus under the conditions of temptation. Um, and it's a very inexpensive book. Um, so if you're going to buy anything for, for reflection in Lent on prayer, I highly recommend it. Thank you so much. Thank you.